0: We'll hear argument next in Case 09-5201, Barbara versus Thomas, the Warden, Mr. Satti. Mr. Chief Justice, and
1: may it please the court, the phrase "term of imprisonment" appears three times in the first sentence of the federal good time statute. The first two times, the parties are in agreement. "Term of imprisonment" means sentence imposed. The third use, which sets the rate. Well, good times credit also means the sentence imposed, when it's used in the phrase up to 54 days of good time credit towards the service of the sentence.
2: Of course, it doesn't always mean that. I think you say somewhere in your brief that it always means that. It surely does not always mean that. Because in, uh, what is it, uh, uh, 3624, wait a minute now 3624 d says that upon the release of a prisoner on the expiration of his term of imprisonment the bureau of prison shall give him clothes, money and transportation now there the expiration of his term of imprisonment does not mean the uh the assigned term of imprisonment it means the assigned term of imprisonment less all the good time credits he's had Exactly. Unless Unless you think they're supposed to give him his clothes, uh, you know, several
1: months after he leaves. Your Honor, that is a perfect use of term of imprisonment to mean actual time and any good time credits earned. Right. And it uses the term release. Release is defined in 3624A, which says that you are released when you have your actual time served and any good time. The flaw in the Bureau of Prisons system is that they do not give credit towards the term of imprisonment as the statute in 3624b well, I'm dictated.
2: not addressing that. I'm, I'm, all I'm doing, look, the, the text says, upon the release of a prisoner on the expiration of his term of imprisonment. My only point is that that you have to acknowledge that that is a use of the phrase term of imprisonment that does not mean the sentence he was given, but
1: rather means the sentence that he served. I respectfully disagree agree because it expires. A term of imprisonment, a 10 year sentence, expires when you have 311 days 10 times. That means it's expired because you also are giving those 54 days of good
3: time credits 10 times. Why well, really isn't th- the, the term of imprisonment most reasonably understood to mean the term that is imposed, viewed at the time? when it is imposed. So that if someone is sentenced to a a term of 360 days, five years, uh, and begins serving the sentence on January 1st, year one of the term imposed ends on December 31st of that year. Year two of the term imposed begins on January 1st of the following year and so forth.
1: Justice Alito, that would be the end of the time served for one year. But for the term of imprisonment, Because if we assume at the end of the 365 days that person has earned maximum good time credit, that he should receive credit towards the service of the sentence, that means on the 365th day he should move back on the calendar an adjustment for good time and a reset for the next year. That way, if you have a 10-year sentence, you have 10 opportunities.
3: I understand what you're arguing, but I don't understand why the term of imprisonment changes. We look at the the term of the imprisonment uh, on the day when it's imposed and the day when the the defendant begins serving the sentence, and you can say Year 1 ends at the end of 2010, Year 2 ends at the end of 2011. Why do you think that the term, the, the phrase term of imprisonment has to change as the understanding of the term of imprisonment has to change as the prisoner progresses in serving the sentence, I have totally failed to understand that.
1: It doesn't change. It's still the two components of a term of imprisonment are actual time and good time credits. So the way we are presenting it is the first year of the term of imprisonment is the 311 days of actual service and the 54 days. But you now, don't
3: know whether that you don't know whether that prisoner is going to be eligible. We' at the 54 days until the 365 days are over.
1: That's fine. Bureau prisons determined that the person should receive up to 54 days at day 365, then they receive credit towards the service of their sentence. That means moving it back 54 days because they didn't have to serve those days.
3: Well, I'm not sure and then reset: I'm not sure where you get that out of the statute, but I still don't think you've answered my question. I don't want to belabor it too much. On the day when the prisoner in my hypothetical begins serving his sentence, uh, if you said, "When will your first year of imprisonment, first year of the term of imprisonment, end?" you would say, "December 31st, 2010." When will the second year of the term of imprisonment end? December 31st, 2011. That's what you would have to say at that point because you don't know whether the prisoner will earn any good time credit. So why do you think? That the meaning of the year of a term of imprisonment changes as the sentence goes on. I do do not
1: think it changes. I think that it is adjusted for good time, which is exactly what Congress intended. They said that every day you get credit beyond time served. They use the phrase "beyond time served" for credit towards served.
4: Perhaps I can, um, if you'll permit me, um, uh, uh, rephrase. Justice Alito's question, in sort of the more simplistic way I looked at it, why is it that we have to do the calculation that you're talking about, which is start at 311 days and take back days, which makes no sense to me, or their very complicated 10-page number, why can't they just take 54 days at the end of every year that there's actual service And at the time served, plus whatever number of days have been earned, you subtract it from the term of imprisonment. So if he was imprisoned for 10 years, he got 540 days for, or whatever it is, at the end of the ninth year, he made up whatever. You added up nine times 54, and you took it away from 10, he serves nine and that. Um, that would make sense of beyond-the-time-served language that's in this provision.
1: Justice Sotomayor, we are not asking, 311 doesn't have to be the magic day of when they determine whether they should receive it. We're saying, go ahead, assume exactly what they're doing now, go up to 365 days, but they do make a determination. At that point of making the determination, that's when they go back the 54 days and have to reset. That way, on a 10-year sentence, you have 10 blocks that Congress intended to give prisoners to be able to earn 54 days in each of those blocks. Now the way that we were hearing it positive from Justice Alito, if we have the 54 days on top of time served without any adjustment, then we end up with a 419-year day first year. 1st and you only can fit eight opportunities to earn the 54 days.
3: No, no not at all, no. At the, end of the, at the end of 2010, in my hypothetical, you would take the 54 days off the end, just as Justice Sotomayor suggested. And the, and, but it doesn't mean that the service of your, — your argument is predicated on the idea that service of year two begins on the 311th day.
1: If there is an adjustment for good time because term of imprisonment is a term of art that doesn't mean
3: time served only. I don't understand that. I I, I will not belabor it. I I don't understand why the parties have spent so much time sparring over that issue, which seems to me to be totally uh, unnecessary and irrelevant.
1: Justice Alito, if I could refer you to 3621A, 3624A, and 3624B. Each of those refers, when they're talking about, a term of imprisonment, each refers to it as less good time. And, and, and unless you do that, the reason- Well,
4: you do it, if you take A, and A says, a prisoner shall be released by the Bureau of Prisons on the date of the expiration of the prisoner's term of imprisonment. Ten years, we're assuming an imprisonment. Less any time credited towards the service of the prisoner's sentence as provided in subsection B.
1: Exactly.
4: So each year that he served, you add up the number of days he has served, the good time credit, and you subtract them from the 120 months that you've given him. And you figure out when he's going to get out. You work backwards, not forward the way everyone seems to be doing.
1: If you do that, you only end up with eight opportunities to to have 54 days. That's why it's the difference between I think anybody But read- that's the
4: way the language is written. So I mean, you may want greater opportunity, but it says <laughs> by its explicit days terms at the date of the ex- prisoner's ter- uh, expiration of the prisoner's term of imprisonment, take that day and subtract from it time credited towards the service of the prisoner's sentence.
1: We're going to the the rate phrase is up to 54 days at the end of each year of the term of imprisonment. If there's a ten-year term of imprisonment, that means there's ten opportunities to earn 54 days. The Bureau of Prisons math ends up with 470 days, 70 days less. And the reason for that is that they do not interpret term of imprisonment to encompass the possibility of good time. That is the only — because you should have ten blocks of 365 days. Each of those blocks, you may be able to get 54 days, then it's 311, but maybe you didn't earn any time. Then it would be a 365 block. But the actually, the very good idea that Congress had was that you have an incentive at every stage of your term of imprisonment for good behavior. Even if you were misbehaving early in your prison term, at the end, you still have the opportunity to earn 54 days against that last 365 days it counts for every word in the statute it gives every statute meaning and it doesn't put us in the position of giving two two phrases the exact same meaning in the same sentence this court has never found that phrases two phrases uses a term of imprisonment in the same sentence mean different things. What do you do with
5: the, if it's a very short sentence, uh, a year and a day, in your view, is a year and a day less 54. Yes. But 360
1: days, what do you do with that? With 360?
5: Yes. If suppose it's for three, for just this, the whole sentence is 368.
1: If it's a 366 days, so that oh, it's a year and a day.
5: 360, in other words,
1: short of a year. Then a 360-day sentence would not be eligible because parties are agreed that term of imprisonment means a sentence of more than a year. So it would have to be more than 365 days. So the person that gets a year and a day serves less than the person that gets less than a year. That is correct. And district courts frequently address that problem when uh, you have a relatively short sentence, you say, Judge, could you give us, instead of uh, an 11-month sentence, could you give us a year and a day sentence? So that you could earn the good time on that. It's
2: how, how can you earn the good time? I mean, you, you only earn the good time if, if, if you're a good prisoner for a year.
1: That gets us to so the you're, last
2: you So you're going to let him out 54 days before the year, even though he hasn't earned the good time in the year? What he has.
1: How has he? He has because of the last sentence in 3624B that says that for the last year or portion of the year, that you go ahead and establish the two step process. First you figure out the projected release date, which is the release date with maximum good time, then you make the decision about whether the prisoner should receive that within six weeks of that, uh, of that projected release date. But and so the project-
6: give him the full 54 days. he has only 42 days in
1: six weeks that's only a a measure of when you make the determination. They're they're recognizing that for the last period of time or for a a year-and-a-day sentence, that you're not going to be able to do the time all the time, but you will. So that's why there's a special mechanism at the end. And I'm saying that special mechanism can't give the full 54 days. Exactly. Because they don't make it until 42 days before the end of the sentence. They make it till uh, 311 days at the end of the sentence because what they do is they Make the determ- they figure out what the maximum good time would be, which would be 312 days on a 300 and, uh, on a year and a day sentence, and they make that determination earlier. They say, okay, you've been good for that period of time. We recognize that this is going to be a problem, the same problem you would have on a sentence of uh, 10 years and six months, where you have to prorate the credit 27 days instead of 54, half, and then figure out the projected release date for the 180 days. Subtract the twenty seven days and then make the determination sometime within the six weeks up to that last point, so that there is a uh, an mechanism for understanding that it's going that in the last year there's go- going to be an assumption that if you 're behaving all the way up to in the full sentence day three eleven you should get the full fifty four days
0: i 'm sure there's something wrong with this predicate to this question, but the the statute Allows the Bureau to make a determination of good time credit within 15 days after the end of each year of the sentence. Yes. They cannot make that determination within 15 days of the 311 days. And so e- each year of the sentence must mean each year, the full year, the 365 days.
1: Our position is that the Bureau of Prisons can make its determination as it pleases. We're, we're asking the court to do construe a statute, not write a policy statement. So we understand that there are going to be some mechanics of it. But the mechanics in this work very easily with the assurance that they are receiving good time credit against the period of the sentence imposed by the
0: judge. You treat each year of the sentence as the 311 days if there's been good behavior. No. Not
1: necessarily. We're, I'm, if the of prison wants to make that determination at day 365, that's fine as long as they adjust by doing exactly what the statute says, credit towards the service of the sentence, move it back 40, 54 days, and then reset. If you do that, you
7: have 10 blocks of 365 well, well, days. Why do you have to do I mean, you read it's so complicated. I'm uh, Just reading this, I, I think the language would say this. Ten years. He's got a ten-year sentence. At the end of the first year, you write the number 54 on a piece of paper if he's done well. At, I suppose he goes in on January one, okay? So January two after the first, you write the word 50, number fifty four, and you do that each year. And by the time you get to the year eight, what you have done is you've got four hundred and thirty two days. So then you subtract the four hundred and thirty days from ten years, and what you get is you're sixty seven days short of nine years. So now you look at the last sentence, and what you do? You should take sixty-seven days, subtract that from three hundred and sixty-five, and you've got two hundred and ninety-eight, and you simply prorate for those two hundred and ninety-eight. And you subtract that too, so he gets another ten days or so, or fifteen days credit, and that's it. And that's following the statute, it seems to me, absolutely literally, and it also seems to me to make sense, because you don't want to give him credit for time he never serves. Just prior, I think it
1: doesn't make sense, because what it does is it creates a 87.2 minimum sentence that is served, and we know that the sentencing
7: table upon which every federal sentence
1: is predicated is based on 85 percent.
7: No, that isn't what the, 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 if you want to know what the Sentencing Commission did, I think the best evidence of that is you read the introduction to the guide. And what the introduction to the Guidelines says is that, roughly speaking, many of the sentences approximate the time actually served before. Now, what to me that suggests is the Sentencing Commission never considered this question, and if there's something more specific than that that shows they did, I'd like to know what it is, because I don't trust memory. Your Honor, we're relying very heavily on the
1: supplemental report at at page 140 of the joint appendix that says, we, multi- we divided by .85 in order to calibrate the sentencing table to include good time. That means that every sentence has been calibrated based on assuming 10 opportunities to earn 54 days. First, not the the Government
2: contends it's none of the Sentencing Commission's business, and it's up to the Bureau of Prisons. Isn't that the Government's position?
1: That is their position, and our position is that it's administering the statute is the Bureau of Prisons business, but deciding what the minimum sentence that can, minimum time that can be served to satisfy a term of imprisonment is a policy decision, and that the policy is properly placed.
7: In yeah, but there's ad- nothing in there. That, that, that's not a policy statement. That's not a guideline. That's a staff conclusion. And the staff conclusion, I think, if conflicting with what it says in the, in the, in uh, the, uh, introduction to the guidelines, which is that all this was very approximate. I don't see how, how, how a court would be bound by that.
1: I think that the court could be advised by it in terms of knowing that we are looking at a harsher sentence. Everybody is serving more time than the sentence that the judge imposed was, whether it was advisory guidelines or mandatory guidelines, the sentencing table provided the initial baseline, and that initial baseline was boosted by 2.2 percent, which is not an insignificant amount, and there is a very simple way for the Court to construe the statute consistently throughout to conform the two, so that people are not serving 2.2 percent more time in custody than the sentencing table that every judge uses in imposing their sentence. We are institutionalizing a harsher system. In a way that doesn't meet the statutory language, because the statutory language says term of imprisonment. And if it's term of imprisonment, 10 years of a term of imprisonment, I think a reasonable, plain meaning is that you have 10 opportunities to earn 54
8: days. You, you uh, said something about 15% uh, or 85% is more workable. Um, system, then, what, 12.9 do, percent. Do we have um, any information on, A, the number of um, federal prisoners who get good time, and in that universe, the ones who get good time, how many get the full credit and how many get something less than the full 54 days?
1: Justice Ginsburg, there are approximately 200,000 prisoners, and of those, about 195,000 of them are eligible for good-time credits. My anecdotal experience is that most prisoners get most of the the good-time credits. It's not at all unusual for prisoners to achieve most of that. There are some that have minor amounts, and there's a relatively small number, at least in my experience, uh, who do not get a lot of it.
7: Is this right? I'm sorry to ask you this question, but... I get lost in the math of this sometimes. The, do you remember my example I just gave? The, the yeah, with the nine years you go. Yes, what The, I don't the, piece of the 490. Paper. I take it what you want is you in in essence want him to get credit for 54 days for that tenth year. Yes. Yes. And and the argument against that, leaving the language and so forth, is well, look, he's this is an imaginary tenth year. He's not actually in prison for 10 years. Uh, he 's going to be released sometime late in year eight, and so why should we add fifty four days uh, I mean maybe it'd be a nice thing because sentences are awfully long but 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 uh, uh, why, why would anybody want to add fifty four days in respect to a year that 's never going to be served it,
1: each year is served in the if you take away the 54 days if you credit it towards the service of the sentence and do the adjustment and reset that we're asking the court to do so that you have 10 opportunities then in the last year you're when you in you go to the last sentence that acknowledges that you're going to have to make some arbitrary time that you're going to say okay we're going to decide that you've done well enough that you're going to be able to get the full credit for the last year but the flaw in the Bureau of Prisons is that by having the 54 days and actual time, and that that's what happens at the first year, that's a 419-day first year. You can only squeeze eight of those in. The prisoners look at it and they see plain statute. What was your term of imprisonment? How many ends of each year of a term of imprisonment do you have in a 10-year sentence? Well, the statute says
3: that it's re- the credit, it can be received quote, at the end of each year of the prisoner's term of imprisonment, beginning at the end of the first year of the term. Yes. Now, when does, w- w- when is that point, in your opinion?
1: The Bureau of Prisons probably has discretion in administering. I'm accepting as a
3: proposition on the day 365 they make that determination. Okay, so the three, day 365 is the end of the first year of, Im- of the term of imprisonment. That.
1: That's when they're making the determination. If they make a determination that he he should receive credit, then the end of the first year becomes day 311,
3: because he has received 311. The statute says that that the prisoner may receive credit at the end of each year of the prisoner's term of imprisonment, beginning at the end of the first year of the term. And what I'm asking is, when is the end of the first year of the term within the meaning of that language? The meaning of is that day language? Is day three, three, three. Is it day 365, or is it day 311? It depends. And the reason it
1: depends is because the language of the statute says credit toward the service of the prisoner's sentence beyond time served. So if you do it beyond time served, and you give him credit towards that sentence, the Bureau of Prisons is making a determination. Once we ma- they make their determination, and we respect that determination, We then have to go from the 365th day back, because for 54 of those days he doesn't have to be there. He's earned that time, and you can adjust and reset for the next 365.
4: You started at 311, and he now serves another year, and you backed him up again at the end of that year to 300. Yes, that
1: is that is certainly one way of mechanically doing it, so that you have 10 blocks of 365 days. Each is a term of imprisonment, because and term you, of imprisonment. And
4: you think that their system is easier? Yes. That their system uh, is No, worse?
1: absolutely not. Their, <laughs> their system makes,
7: nobody can uh, understand the math. And another way to think, and I think you, probably you'll, if you look through the records of the Commission, you'll see nobody ever thought about this problem. And the, 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 uh, so but you'll see a lot of talks given uh, by various people who are there, which say that for this reason you're bringing up, that it might have been thought there was no credit for the first year. In other words, you don't get the sentence in the first year, you don't begin to cut until the second year has been served. So he has to serve 365 days. Now, when you point that up, that's not the Bureau of Prisons' interpretation. That's nobody's interpretation. They're all going to let him out if it's a year and a day. They're going to let him out several weeks before the end of the first year, aren't they? Yes, there was yeah, a technical amendment to do that. Oh, there was a technical amendment. To address that, that first year to make sure that they that's did In other words, the statute met before.
1: Uh, exactly. Ah, I better get When text. it was at 36 days, and it's interesting because on page 56 of the uh, of the Senate report on this, they used the term adjust for good time. Now, that, then it was 36 days, but Congress was using exact same thought as the language here that says that the time is that you give credit towards the service of the sentence. And with the Court's permission, I'll re- reserve the remaining time.
9: Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Wall. Mr. Chief Justice, and may I may it please the Court. Justice Breyer, I think you stole my thunder. I I wanted to explain how the Bureau does it, and you laid it out exactly right. If you have, and I think just looking at the language of the statute, it tracks perfectly. If you have a prisoner serving a ten-year sentence, and he comes in on January 1st, the end of his first year of the term of imprisonment is December 31st. And on that date, he gets 54 days taken off the back end of his sentence. That cycle repeats itself for the next eight years. and at yeah, the right.
7: f- But the trouble with that, is it, and I'm glad to know about that technical amendment, because then, right. we never considered it when I was on the, nobody ever thought about it at that time, because the language was different. But now that you've got this language now, it's hard to reconcile with that first year. He's sentenced for a year and a day, you see. So literally, it says calculated on January 2 of the next year. But he's already been in for longer than he should be by that point. So you really have to calculate it before the year ends. You have to calculate it at least by October. And and, and once you start calculating it before, the statute literally says, we're into a more complicated thing than I thought.
9: Well, and that's why they have the sentence at the end, as you pointed out, about the proration. So when this When the statute says, what it says, starts by saying is, if you're serving a sentence of longer than a year, you're eligible for good time credit. So you're earning credit as you go through that first year. Congress knew then that if you had a year and a day sentence, you wouldn't actually be serving a full year because the credit's bringing you below the year mark. So what it does in the last sentence, it says, if you're in your last year and that's a partial year, we prorate. So on your 319th day, you've earned 47 days of good time credit. Those combined equal a sentence of a year and a day, and you're out after your 319th day. There's a hypothetical- premise flaw there,
4: and that premise flaw is that you've told us that you don't earn the credit until the end of the year. Well, so your answer about this probation is not an answer, because un- your, your
9: premise is not the same. That's right, for each full year served, so for a 10 year sentence, you're right that you're making the determination at the end of the year for the first eight years. But when you get to that ninth year, as Justice Breyer pointed out, I'm not worried about sentences
4: that are more than two years. I'm worried about the prisoner who's sentenced to a year and a day. How does that proration help that individual since they're not going to get the good time credit until they've served the
9: year. So, the way this works is that for the prisoner sentenced to a year and a day, or 13 months, or 14 months, because they're receiving credit through that first year, their good time credit brings them below a year. They'll never serve Absol- a full year. I, I, <laughs> and what the last. I, that's minutes, what I'm saying to you.
4: Right. The whole brief says to us we measure. The entitlement
9: to good time credit at the end of the first year, except for the last year or partial year. And what the final sentence of B1 says is, credit for the last year or portion of a year of the term of imprisonment shall be prorated and credited within the last six weeks. So, for the prisoner who has a year and a day sentence, his sentence is literally all proration. He is just serving a partial year.
4: He's not going to get 54 days. He's going to get that's right
9: on the 319th day. He's come through about nine-tenths the year. He's accrued 47 I
4: just days. want to make absolutely sure, because I hadn't done the math forward. I did the math backwards, right. which was the one that Justice Breyer and Justice Alito set forth, which right. is 54 days are earned after each year, and you take it off the full term of imprisonment. The, you're representing to me that the math that's in your program statement is accomplishing that result?
9: Absolutely. Which is to say, when the prisoner gets to his last year, if that's a partial year, he's not going to get the full 54 days. He's going to get some portion of the 54 days, based on what part of the year he serves. And that's prorated and credited within the last six weeks. Now, it's normally done on the release date. So in that ninth year for the 10-year prisoner, he's got so 290 days. I just days.
6: interrupt with one question? If he got a total of 540 or whatever it is, he should never enter the ninth year because he would fi- he would finish the 10-year sentence in less than eight years well but, or less than nine years that's
9: that's right setting his, 540 wouldn't be quite two years but setting that to the side so how does he how does he
6: get his tenth block of good time how does he ever get it under your per- approach well
9: he, under the government's view he can only earn good time credit when he's actually incarcerated and what petitioners are coming in and right. saying
6: is i understand but, but explain to me how how he can get more than a year of good time credit Before the tenth year begins.
9: Well, so if you take a ten-year prisoner, a prisoner with a ten-year sentence, the way it currently works, at the end of the eighth year, he's accrued 432 days of good time credit,
6: which is more than a year.
9: Right. So he's knocked off his full tenth year, and he's knocked off a part of his ninth year. Now we're at that final ninth year, which is a prorated year. He's got 298 days left, and by the 260th day. He's earned 38 days of credit. So he's released after the 260th day of his ninth year. And as Justice Breyer pointed out, that precisely tracks the language of the statute. You do it at the end of each full year until you get to the last partial year, and then you prorate and you do it in the last six weeks.
5: And each of those four years included 54 days of credit?
9: That's right. So he, the petitioner the petitioners here. Uh, petitioner Barber, for instance, has been incarcerated for over 17 years. At the end of each of his 17 years in prison, he's gotten 54 days of credit. What Petitioner Barber is here saying is I'm going to get three whole years knocked off the end of my sentence. I want the 54 days for those years, too. I want 54 days for every year of my sentence as imposed by the Court, not as served by me behind bars. And that's what doesn't track the language of the statute, because the only way you can do that, as Justice Alito pointed out, is to read year to mean 311 days. And it's no answer to say, as petitioners do, well, you can do the determination whenever. What they're saying is at the end of a 311-day period You should determine whether the prisoner gets the credit. But what the statute says is that the determination itself has to occur at the end of the year. So you can't fold the 54 days into the year because you haven't made the determination yet. Well,
3: I did not understand them to be saying that. I I, I understood them to be saying that the determination could be made at the end of 365 days. But if it's determined that the prisoner is entitled to 54 days of credit, then – year one should be regarded as having begun on the 312th day rather than the 366th day?
9: I think that's right, which first is inconsistent with the language of the statute, which says at the end of each year, so that reads a year to be a 311-day cycle. But it also sets up a very odd system. What happens if the prisoner misbehaves during days 312 and days, day 365? On petitioner's approach, it seems to me the new year has started on day 312. Now, take the example. He says, well, you could do it on the 365th day. Well, if the prisoners misbehaved on day 340, is that coming out of the first year
3: or out of the second year? Well, I think that they would say you won't know when the second year has begun until the full calendar year has been completed.
9: And I guess the, the difficulty with that approach is that it seems to me, once the 311-day cycle is finished, you have to start a new 311-day cycle on day 312.
5: Well, they're just not vested until the year is, the full year is passed.
9: Well, so vesting is a little bit unique, just kind of under the statute, because none of the time vests under B2 until they're actually released.
0: But well, I, 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 I
9: use it. But in I, the I see what you're saying. They could do the bookkeeping determination on day 365, but I don't think that's what's important. What's important is that, on petitioners' view, the second year for credit purposes has to start on day 312. You have to have 10 blocks of 311 days, and you have to be measuring after every 311th day. No, no, you don't measure.
2: No, I don't think that. You, you, be, you begin measuring on 311, but you measure 365 days from, from 311. And if he's behaved well during all, all of those 365 days, then – you knock off another 51 days or whatever it is, and you begin the third year from then. But you give him another 365 days to determine whether he's behaved well.
9: Justice Scalia, if you're measuring 365 days from day 311, then you should equally be measuring 365 days from day 1. Which is to say, if you're doing. He did.
2: He did. You, you didn't give him the credit until he'd served the f- whole 365 days. And, at that point, he gets the credit, and you count the second year as though
9: it begins on day 311. Well, the, I was half with you there. The Bureau does do it by looking at what they do during the full year, from January 1 to December 31st, and then it determines whether you get 54 days knocked off the end of your sentence. What happens between Day 311 and Day 365 is not different than what happens during the rest of the year. Exactly. What the the statute asks the Bureau to determine is, at the end of each year, has during that year the prisoner demonstrated exemplary compliance with institutional regulations. So the prisoner's got to go a full year, a full 365 days, and be well-behaved. Then he gets 54 days taken off the back end of his sentence. And if that's the way that you're saying it should work, that is precisely how the Bureau interprets the statute.
2: Oh, except that they're not taking it off from the back end. They're taking it off from the next year. So that in the second year, if he, if he behaves well for 365 days from 311, okay, he behaves well for the next 365 days, the next year will begin at 622. But then he has to serve another 365 days. Before he gets good card credit, and then the th- the the next year will begin three times three hundred and eleven, what we'll nine hundred and thirty three, and so forth.
9: Just really, I think that sets up an odd system, not consistent. Isn't that them. right? <clears throat> See, he agrees with me. <laughs> no, I, no I, I, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that that's that's what he's no, proposing. No, I, I I agree. That is the difference. Petitioners think that you measure credit over these three hundred and eleven day cycles, and if you you know. You get to the 311th day, you take your 54 days of credit, and together they equal a year of the sentence imposed. But what the statute says is you make the determination at the end of the year. And we don't read year to be a 311-day period. We read it to be a 365-day period. Yeah, but
6: just as Scalia's example, you do make the determination on the 365th day, but what you determine is that having been a, a good prisoner, his first year expired 54 days earlier. But what and you the, start over.
9: That's right. But what the statute, the statute doesn't just say, Justice Stevens, you make the determination at the end of the first year of the term. The determination is that during that year, the prisoner has displayed compliance. So he's got to display compliance day one through day 365. Let
6: me, let me interrupt to get one thing off my mind that I just – supposing he misbehaves in year three. Does that just affect his good time credits in year three, or does it mean he's canceled for year one and two?
9: Well, no, he can lose credit that he has accrued up to that point, but he can't lose credit that he has, he's eligible for in future years. So let's say that we're coming up on the end of the third year, he's earned his full 108 days for his first two years, and he's earned some prorated portion. He can lose any of that, but he's still eligible going forward to keep getting 54 days at the end of his year. He can lose
0: his 108 days. Yes. How can he do that? I'm looking at page 14A of your appendix, it says such credit toward Service of sentence vests at the time that it is received. Credit that is vested may not later be withdrawn. I'm
9: sorry, Mr. Chief I should have been more clear. For prisoners' sentence subject to the SRA, which was in effect from 1987 to 1994, you're right, and that's the the SRA you're quoting in the brief, their credit vests. That vesting requirement was eliminated in the PLRA, which governs prisoners' sentence since 1996. So for the vast bulk of prisoners in the Federal system who are subject to the PLRA, Their credit is not best until they are released.
8: Mr. Hall, uh, if we consider both methods plausible, the number comes out 15 percent, 85 percent, 15 percent. It's a more workable number, and there are some hints in the legislative history that Congress thought 85 percent not Um, 87.2 or whatever it is. So choosing between those two methods, why not take the easier number to work for you?
9: Well, two reasons. I think to the extent that you're suggesting the statute is ambiguous, the Bureau of Prisons is charged by Congress with administering the statute. In both Reno v. Corey and Lopez v. Davis, this Court deferred to the Bureau's interpretation of other prisoner credit statutes. We think the Bureau is equally entitled to the same discretion here to interpret this statute.
5: If we disagree with that, uh, if we disagree that the BOP has uh, authority in this area, then, as Justice Ginsburg's question, I think suggests, does not the rule of lenity apply?
9: Well, this Court's been clear, and I, I can't put it any better than Justice Sotomayor did in her first opinion in SASH, that this is not a criminal statute. It neither imposes a criminal prohibition on conduct. How do you nor explain the
5: Granderson case? I'm sorry. The Granderson case.
9: I'm not familiar with that case, Justice Kennedy. Uh,
5: I, I had thought that in that case, uh, Justice Ginsburg for this court established the proposition that the rule of lenity is is applicable. No, it wasn't cited in the petitioner's brief either. That was a parole revocation case. But in, in any event, um, the, the, shouldn't the rule of lenity uh, apply where? If the rule of lenity is thought of as a notice requirement uh, insofar as uh, giving you warning to what conduct is punishable, that's one thing. But doesn't the rule of lenity mean more than that? It's a check against the power of the state so that you simply uh, mitigate the, the power of the state in favor of the individual by, in a case like this, uh, applying the rule of
9: lenity. I think it's a check against the power of the state when it's penalizing conduct or when it's putting for the penalty for a criminal prohibition. But in both Corey and Lopez, this Court was considering what pres- prisoner credit statutes meant, other prisoner credit statutes, 18 U.S.C. 3585 and 3621. And in both of those, it deferred to the Bureau's interpretation. And in both, it specifically rejected application of the rule of lenity. And I think the notion there is that this statute isn't a criminal statute. It sets out an administrative reward for compliance with institutional regulations. And that's different from setting forth a prohibition on conduct or the penalty that someone is sentenced to by a court once they've been convicted of a criminal offense. Well,
5: the Granderson case is cited in the brief of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and as I read it, it applies to this area, and it seemed to me that it ought to. I mean, you tell us this isn't a criminal statute. Uh, I, I certainly think it has, it has all the impact and force. Of the state detaining a person for a criminal act.
9: Well, it, it is a statute that determines, in some sense, how long you will be imprisoned. So I take your point, but it does so not by extending the penalty applicable to the conduct, but by offering an administrative reward, sort of relieving you of part of the burden of that that penalty. And I'm not aware of any case, and I'm, I'm obviously not familiar with Granderson, but I'm not aware of any case from this court or indeed any lower court. Finding that section 3624 is a criminal statute, as this court's cases like oh, by isn't Bifoto there
6: another consideration? It's it's not the rule of lenity, but something else we should take into account. In the end of their reply brief, they say it costs about twenty-five or six thousand dollars to house a particular prisoner. In the number of prisoners involved, there's something like a hundred million dollars in taxpayers' money. It's an issue in this case. It, it is, do you, you don't disagree with that general figure? Do you?
9: I, I'm, I think the basis for that is just math that the petitioners have done. I don't have any independent basis for confirming But in any it event,
6: it, it's clear it's a lot of money. And, and uh, is that not a factor that we should be aware of in this case? Uh, because uh, all other things being equal, assume, assume the statutes is totally ambiguous. And if, you, if one's the one, one version will save the 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 Government uh, $100 million a year, and the other version will cost it, isn't that a factor we, we should take into consideration?
9: I think it's a factor that the Bureau could, should and has taken into consideration in developing its interpretation as the agency charged with administering the statute. But what the Bureau has found is that its method allows you to earn good time for all the time you're incarcerated, so you always have an incentive to comply with prison regulations. And what petitioners haven't responded to, and it's the government's point in our brief, that if you start measuring by 311-day cycles, you're assuming that they're getting the full 54 days of credit. And to the extent that they don't, no matter how they calculate it, Justice Scalia, no matter what their matter of bookkeeping is, if they don't get the full 54 days of credit for each cycle, there will be some corresponding period at the end of the sentence when they are serving time, and they've already had their ten, you know, their ten reviews, and they're no longer eligible. For yeah, that's that.
7: true. But the strongest argument—I, I don't want to put words in his mouth because this is complicated. But as I see it, is this: let's call the time you're talking about that tenth year phantom time. Okay. Now you're saying, don't put in any phantom time, and he's saying, let's put some in. Now, a strong, a strong argument, I think, for his is the following. Think about that first year. That first year, we're going to calculate 54 days, subtract it. Everybody seems to agree to get to number 311, right? But if you were to apply the last sentence to that first year, the prorating sentence, you wouldn't get 54. You would get, like, 45 days or 47 or something like that. But everybody agrees, under the Bureau of Prison system, that it is 54. And therefore, in respect to the first year, they are calculating phantom time, i.e., not the first year, but a person who had a sentence to a year and a day. If you had a sentence to a year and a day, you agree it's 54 days. And everybody agrees with that, and that includes phantom time. So he said, well, if you include it for the first year, since the statute says nothing about the first year, why not include it for the other years, too? How can you possibly justify phantom time being included in the first year, but not in the other year?
9: Justice Breyer, I disagree with your premise. Someone sentenced to a year and a day is eligible for credit. But because that person is accruing credit as he serves, he'll never actually get 54 days. Uh, by the time he gets to the 319th day, he's accrued 47 days of credit. Those combined to equal his 366-day sentence.
7: So, in other words, they don't let him out under three. That's, that's exactly. The, in other words, the Bureau of Prisons for a person who has a sentence of a year and a day does not let him out uh, 54 days short. Rather, they let him out 47 days short because they apply the last sentence in the prorating. And that is that exactly sentence. our difference. That's what
9: happened. Petitioner's view, exactly. What petitioner's is, that, is that what happened? Yes, yes. He's released after the 319th day. And I think the, what petitioners actually want is, is phantom time even in the first year. What they're saying is, fine, he may only serve 311 days, 312 days, 319 days. We want the full 54. So instead of letting him out of 319, back him up to 312. We want that phantom week in the first year. And so I, I think the, the way the Bureau interprets it, there is no phantom time in, in any year. The way the petitioners interpret it, there's phantom time in every year, no matter the length of the sentence. And, as I've said, I I think that creates a gap in coverage. It rests on this assumption that prisoners are always getting 54 days. That is just not the case.
8: Do you disagree with your colleague that that is the case most of the time, that most Federal prisoners get good time credit, and of the ones who get credit, most of them get the full 54 days?
9: There are no statistics on this, but, yes, Justice Ginsburg, I think the majority of prisoners – do earn the full credit, certainly these petitioners have. But I would say that there are, say, 15 to 20 percent Federal prisoners who tend to be repeat offenders, and they are often being docked to good time credit. So I think what you'll see is that the ones getting 54 days do it pretty consistently, and the ones not getting 54 days often do that pretty consistently. And, you know, the difficulty on petitioners' method is that no matter when you want to do the calculation, petitioners at bottom are saying, what you should be looking at is a 311-day period. And you take those 311 days served, you take the 54 days of credit, and together they give you a year of the sentence imposed. And not only does that not serve penological interests, as the Bureau has found, but it just doesn't track the language of the statute, which says that during each year, you've got to comply with the regulations. The statute cares not just about your conduct from days 1 to 311, but your conduct from day 312 to 365. All of those days are equal in the statute's eyes. If you want your 54 days of credit knocked off the back end of your sentence, you've got to behave and comply with the rules for a full year each time you want the credit. Counsel,
4: this explanation that's been given in your brief and the one you're giving to us now as to why Bach chose what it did, is there any statement outside of the pen affidavit that explains
9: why this choice was made? Well, other than the positions positions that the Bureau has taken before the 11 courts of appeals in which it's prevailed, no. the pen- But in each one
4: of them, they've taken the position the statute was unambiguous. Assuming that that is not accepted by us, that it's ambiguous, what and where are we giving Chevron or
9: Skidmore deference to what set of facts or to what st- – Two points, Judge Sotomayor. I don't think the Bureau has always taken the position that the statute is unambiguous. It has taken the fallback position, and it's prevailed on this position in a number of courts of appeals. And it's worth pointing out the Bureau has prevailed in the first through the 11 circuits. It's won in 11 courts of appeals. And it has often prevailed on the ground that it had discretion to interpret the statute to the extent it was ambiguous. Your second point, what would you refer well, to? Well, they you? exercise discretion when they took
4: the position that it was unambiguous?
9: As the Pen Declaration makes clear, and this is at page 154 of the Joint Appendix, when the Bureau promulgated its rule in 1997, it did that based on the statutory language and on making a policy choice to accommodate penological interests, ensuring that credit would always be incentive to good behavior and providing clear notice to inmates of their projected release dates. So. I think you know the government has We've s- never given deference,
4: have we, to an affidavit submitted in litigation um, to explain something that, on its face is not explained either in the, in an agency's regulation or in its policy
9: statement that, that this is giving deference to an affidavit well it's, well, it, it's giving deference to the rule because the affidavit informs the Court that the rule was an exercise of the Bureau's discretion. So far as I know, the Court's never faced that question, but the lower Courts have. And a number of Courts of Appeals faced with rulemaking and informal adjudication have accepted supplementation of the record with affidavits and declarations very much like this one. Because what we're talking about here is an affidavit from one of the agency's original decision-makers. If this were just a post hoc rationalization, I grant you, it might not be enough. But this is one of the Bureau's lawyers involved in the decision-making in the mid-1980s coming in and saying, here is why we adopted the
2: Subsequent legislative history, so to speak, right?
9: <laughs> well,
2: yeah. I mean, we I <laughs> al- we wouldn't allow that. Uh, those of us who use legislative history don't allow a congressman to come in several years after the uh, bill is passed and say, oh, by the way, the way, the reason we voted for that was thus and such. We would kick that out. Why is it any different for an agency's subsequent statement?
9: Justice Scalia, I think it's different because that would be a broadside on Overton Park. And what this Court said was if there's not enough in the agency action itself to enable judicial review, the right answer is not to set it aside. The right answer is to send it back to the agency to let the agency decision-makers explain why they did what they did. And while that might normally be the right course here, the agency's already done that. It's put forward its explanation, and so I think this is one of the rare circumstances where we don't need to remand under Overton Park. We, we know why the agency adopted the rule, and it did it both because of the statutory language and because he thought it was the most sensible policy choice. And I guess I'd turn it around a little bit and say you have a rule promulgated by the agency charged with administering the statute, an agency to which this Court has twice deferred in the interpretation of similar statutes. That rule has been upheld as a substantive matter now in 11 Courts of Appeals. The Ninth Circuit set the rule aside on a procedural basis, which has now been corrected by the agency. It is a republished rule which corrects the infirmity that the Court of Appeals identified. And so the question is, faced with those facts, what would be the point of asking the government to recalculate 195,000 federal sentences? I
2: don't think we send cases back under Overton Park to for, for an agency's uh, uh, description of history, I think we sent it back for the agency to give a reason for its rule, whether that's its current reason or its past reason.
9: It, it's the current reason that counts. Just, Scully, even, even if you thought, as the Court of Appeals did, that the rule was procedurally invalid, you would still, as the Court of Appeals did, defer to the program statement under some level of deference, at least Skidmore.
2: Oh, okay. You don't have to worry about me. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept uh, the, uh, the government's uh, assertion here that that's the government's position. And
9: I — I don't think you're lying. I, I — <laughs> <laughs> uh, My only point, Justice Scalia, was that whether you get there by deferring to the rule or by deferring to the program statement, as the Court of Appeals did, every Court of Appeals to consider it has come out in the same place, which is that by hook or by crook, The Bureau has exercised its discretion to answer this question, and I —
6: You say there are 195,000 sentences affected by this rule. I don't know which way that cuts. If there are 195,000 people spending more time in, you know, significantly more time in jail than they should, that's kind of troublesome.
9: Justice Stevens, I think what I'd say is the Bureau has been doing it the same way since 1987. Congress has amended this statute five times in the last 20 years. It has never moved to alter the Bureau's method. The cumulative...
6: They didn't understand it because it's an awfully hard statute to understand. I.
9: Justice Stevens, with all respect, Justice Breyer got it in the first five minutes. So I think the... Uh, what you mean is I agree with you. You. <laughs> even,
2: you mean even Justice Breyer? Is-
5: <laughs> oh. But... but. What, what, what we were, what we were, what we were saying is that, uh, this is 36,000 years of prisoner time. 36,000. That's older than Mulberry versus
9: Madison. So, <laughs> Kennedy, that's true. I think the, the point is, that the language of the statute has remained unchanged and for the last 20 years the Bureau has interpreted that in a reasonable way. The language is unambiguous, but even if it weren't, at the least the Bureau's interpretation is reasonable, which is why 11 Courts of Appeals have deferred to it. And so I take your point that they're serving more time than under petitioner's interpretation, but I don't think that that policy rationale is properly before this Court. It is properly before the Bureau, which has found that policy consideration outweighed by other penological interests. And I think that's the judgment to which this Court should defer, not its own judgment about how much time these prisoners should, should be serving. And I do think it's important in that regard that Congress has returned to the statute several times. And I take your point that it's complicated, Justice Stevens, but, You've finished but Congress has made a number of technical amendments, and I don't think there's any evidence it did not understand how this longstanding system works.
0: Thank you, Mr. Thank Paul. You. Oh, Mr. Sadi, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you.
1: The the idea that there could be time at the end of the sentences is premised on term of imprisonment meaning time served, which it cannot mean in the same sentence where it says beyond time served. If you make the adjustment for good time credit that is earned at the end of the year, it is credit towards the service of the sentence. That means that it's blocks of 365 days. At the last day of Mr. Barber's sentence, if it's properly computed, he would be Looking at 365 days, if he behaved well until close to the end, we'd go to the last statute that says prorate the remaining period of time, the 30, remaining 36 days he could earn, and credit it in the last six weeks because they are doing that simply as an administrative technique.
4: Uh, 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 just so, in your system, they do the measurement at the end of the 365 days. He misbehaved on the 340th day, and they say for that reason I'm only going to give you 10 days of full time of good time credit. Yes. So now your year starts at 350.
1: 355. Yeah.
4: No, they said they're only giving you 10 days of good time credit because at the end of 355. Right. And so, that, so <laughs> 355,
1: we start the next 365 uh, that, that was days. That's pretty bad.
4: Uh, <laughs> 355. Now, your year starts again on 355 days.
1: 365, and if he behaves very badly, he has to go all the way to the end of that 365 and doesn't get any adjustment. But if he, next year, he starts all over again for 365 days. If he is very good, he gets the 54 days. If I could address the question that was raised by Justice Ginsburg on the rule of lenity, I would like to point out that in the we've relied on both RLC and on Granderson for your articulation of the Rule of Lenity as it would apply in this case, which if after looking at all the other, the statute, the history, the context, and if we cannot, if we apply the Rule of Lenity, if the government's position cannot be shown to be unambiguously correct, we have at least ambiguity here. And then we go to Chief Justice Marshall's seminal discussion of lenity, and what he said was that we look at lenity for the proposition the, to back the principle that the power of punishment belongs to the legislative department and the tenderness of the law for the rights of individuals.
8: But Both the of, argument, one well, of the argument, is not punishment at all. This is a reward. This is a reward for good behavior.
1: At the court in, in Linz and in uh, Weaver used the term increase in punishment when there was no longer available good time credits. For to say that somebody has to serve 87.2 percent of the term of imprisonment imposed by the judge instead of 85 percent, that is imprisonment. For Mr. Barber, that's over six months additional time behind bars in a prison. That's, That's penal. That is affecting individual liberty. It's the type of liberty that was intended to be covered by the rule of lenity and especially in a situation where the initial sentence was imposed based on a grid that was calibrated assuming 85 percent he's ending up serving 2.2 percent more time than the sentencing judge in imposing the sentence so that aspect of punishment and in actual raw time behind bars
0: in a prison Unless there are further questions, I'd reserve my... Thank you, Mr. Sattich. Thank you. Thank you, Council. The case is submitted.